session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my free uh, podcast on iTunes and also my SoundCloud page. Again, the studio number 3104410555. Another reminder for the book of the week for this week, it's Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence. Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman. Um, the book is about over 20 years old, but it was the first book that was dedicated solely, as far as I know, to emotional intelligence. Since then, many, many books and research projects and articles have been written about this very important topic. But it is a, a great book that it really gets into the neurology of it, also looking how the brain is involved in emotions, which I think is very important for us to see, but then also talking about what emotional intelligence is. So I hope you'll join me in reading that book. Now today is, what is it, April 5th, but April 1st here in the United States, um, it's not really a holiday, but there is something that they call April Fool's Day, which is April 1st, which is a day where um, you're supposed to, or I guess it's more allowed for you to do pranks or maybe lie to someone, what they call practical jokes, pretend like something happened, a very common one, people say they're pregnant or they got engaged or whatever else might have happened, and then eventually they let you in and they say, April Fool's, and they say, it was just a joke, and that's basically how it goes. So it's not really a holiday, but it's a day that almost um, sanctions practical jokes and makes them more okay. Now, I sometimes think it's interesting with the practical jokes, and people don't just do them on April Fool's, but I thought it'd be good to talk about it today, because... There's some things that practical jokes or these types of lies show us about our tendencies or about just the ways we might think about certain things that I think is very important to look at. Now, one big thing that I notice about practical jokes is that people think that if no one was physically harmed, then no one was hurt. That's how they even say it. And you'll see people either say that or even in the comments when you read about some kind of practical joke. So very clearly they say if physically no one was harmed, then no one was hurt. So it's just a joke. You shouldn't care. It's not a big deal. And not recognizing that you emotionally can get hurt. And that is very important too. And this is another instance that shows us how much we value physical pain physical illnesses, physical distress, much more significantly than emotional. And sometimes don't even consider emotional distress or pain a real thing when absolutely it is. So I think I mentioned this one last year because it really stood out to me. Um, there was someone, a boyfriend who he, he had a, a girlfriend who loved her dog, as most people do. And what he did was he 
put, made a fake dog or fake stuffed animal dog and put some blood around it and put it under her tire. So basically what he did was he wanted to make it seem like she ran over her own dog, which, I mean, it just is unbelievable to me that someone would think of doing this and think it's funny. Now, so he does this. He put, leaves the, the, the fake dog there with the fake blood and has a camera set up to capture her reaction because this is so funny, which I think is, is so ridiculous. And then she, understandably so, you know, freaks out, just can't believe it. She's devastated. And, you know, she's crying. I don't even remember exactly how she reacted, but I remember the extreme of it, which you could imagine if you thought you actually killed your own dog, ran over your own dog. And then he comes and tells her, oh, it's just a joke. Look, it's a fake dog. Or she realizes that it's a stuffed animal, whatever the case may be. And then you see people liking it and commenting that I can't believe people are getting upset about this. This was just a joke and the dog wasn't actually hurt. Nothing happened. But can you imagine what she felt thinking that she killed her own dog? So two things come up here. One is, again, that physical harm is something important. If nothing or no one was physically harmed, no damage has been done. And also, we have a very hard time putting ourselves in someone else's shoes. Now, when we're watching, we just think it's fun to just enjoy someone getting hurt. And that's another aspect of this, that we think that to laugh at someone else's expense is okay, that it's something we should do. And we even try to do it. And with social media, it's happening more and more. I saw a gentleman dancing on the street a couple days ago, and it's very likely he had mental illness because he was dancing in a very strange way. And I saw a few people with their phones out videotaping it and laughing. And I'm, I'm imagining they were sharing it with people and putting it on social media to basically laugh at this man, humiliate this man who is dancing. Now, I can't lie and say I've never laughed at someone else's expense, but I would hope that we recognize that this is not okay, that we are disrespecting someone to humiliate them and think we it's okay to laugh at them. And I think there's enough ways to find humor in the world that we don't need to humiliate someone to laugh. So sometimes people think, oh, laughter is good, being happy is good. But we don't have to just do it in ways where we humiliate someone, put someone else down, or disrespect them. There's plenty of ways to find humor in the world uh, without that. So coming back to these practical jokes, for one, we don't recognize that emotional pain, first of all, the brain can actually register just like physical pain, even worse. They've shown that with emotional abuse and physical abuse, that it can look the same in uh, the brain. But the devastation that it can cause, and even the trauma that it can cause, I've heard numerous stories of practical jokes that actually have led to PTSD or trauma. For example, uh, people pretending to rob someone at gunpoint. And now anytime the person goes to that same place, they have a traumatic experience, a flashback. Because of course, again, we're not recognizing that we know it's a joke, but the person experiencing it doesn't know. So when we go and pretend like we're robbing them at gunpoint and think it's so funny to them, they feel like their life is in danger. And the body and the mind is all going to respond in that way and have the same reactions it would as if it was real. Because what we know about trauma is trauma is not an objective thing. Trauma is subjective. Even when they define trauma, it's if the person felt they were in harm or danger in some way, if they felt, because sometimes it's not the case. You can hear a movie that's playing, you know, and someone, you think something is happening for, in real life and it can make you respond the same way. It doesn't mean you're not going to have the same reaction. 
So to think that because physically nothing happened to someone, um, to me is ridiculous to think that that means no harm was done. And if you're planning a practical joke, before you go ahead and do it, go through the whole thing imagining being the person's shoes who is being affected by it or who you are joking or tricking. Because most of the time people don't do that. They say, okay, I'm going to do this thing. Oh, it's going to you know, maybe make them have a reaction. But we don't really think about what are they going to go through? What's their experience going to be like? And is that okay? Would I want to put myself in that same situation? And I would hope the answer is no. I've even seen these videos. You probably have seen them because there's so many of them where people, not only does it pr this uh, promote racial stereotypes but they'll have someone looking like a traditional let's say muslim in traditional muslim dress throwing a black bag or something pretending basically to for it to be a bomb and then running away and then you see people's reactions as they run away or try to throw the bag or do something with it and people are laughing and they think it's so funny again um first of all it is promoting a racial stereotype which itself is not good and has negative effects but also if you really think these people were led to believe that there was a bomb inside of this bag is it is it funny to put people in a situation where they think they're about to die and they think their life is in danger and for us to just laugh at it to me it's it's ridiculous that people like these types of things and if you read the comments you always will see people say you know because some people will say this is really bad and not right and then other people say you people need to lighten up it's just a joke no one was hurt and those same kinds of things again um, it's just a joke doesn't mean anything if someone was emotionally harmed that's something and to say because no one was physically harmed nothing happened this is not true so for me this is a very important thing because again it shows how we devalue emotional pain how we don't see it as equal to physical pain my guess would be even if someone got a scratch or some kind of bruise they would say oh look someone was hurt maybe then it was not okay but because no one was physically hurt, even if emotionally people went through a whole lot. They think, well, nothing happened. It's not a big deal. And the reason why I think this is a big deal, of course, not just for in the case of practical jokes, but in the way we treat mental illness and mental pain in general. Uh, we know that we still don't see mental illness the same as we see physical illness. If someone gets a bad diagnosis medically, they get so much sympathy and outpourings of support which absolutely is a good thing. I'm not trying to say don't do that. But what I'm saying is that if someone gets a mental illness diagnosis or someone is going through something psychologically, they should receive the same support, the same care, and the same um, uh, affection or love that you want to show them. But unfortunately, we don't do that. We think that it's just in their brain or it's their problem or something is wrong with them. And is it in their brain? Yes. And as I've talked about before on the show, we know that there's ways that the brain um, manifests mental illness. We can see a, a depressed brain and notice the difference between that and a brain that's not dealing with depression or with anxiety. We can see that there are differences in how their brains are going to react to certain situations. Some people who have anxiety, you might say, oh, they keep worrying about the same things, but they don't try to. If we look at their brain, we see that it just runs in a way that it keeps ruminating or uh, thinking about something negative. They're not trying to be anxious. They don't want to be anxious. And of course, the fact that mental illness is passed on genetically or there's a hereditary component to it 
makes us understand that there's something physiologically going on. People are not just trying to act this way. And as I was mentioning in the book, Emotional Intelligence, uh, the first section, Daniel Goleman really gets into how emotions work in the brain. And it really is fascinating. And um, I would recommend people to read that and really pay close attention to that section to see that the emotions, the things that we feel that sometimes people almost think are not real things or just these feelings and they don't have any real uh, substance to them, there's really something going on in the brain. So our emotions are very important. And if we hurt someone emotionally, we absolutely have hurt them. And we can't think that if we haven't hurt them physically, then no harm was done, no damage has been done to that person. So yes, April 1st just passed. And if you did some April Fool's jokes, I hope you kept these things in mind. But in the future, I hope people think about them as well. That just to think that if physically no one is harmed, I haven't harmed them, that's not meaning that there was no harm done. And also to imagine yourself and put yourself in their shoes. What is their experience going to be like if I pull this practical joke? I've actually done practical jokes before on people um, or sometimes called and pretend like something was going on. But I try not to go to any extreme lengths when I have done that because I don't want them to go through some either very high, high or very low, low, and then let them know that was not the truth. But maybe just have fun with them in a way that doesn't upset them too much. So I'm not saying no fun, no games, don't ever joke with each other or tease each other, any of those things. I know that's not realistic or even healthy. We can have fun with each other, but we can do it with a way of respect and understanding what the other person's experience is like and being able to put ourselves in their shoes. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Uh, hi, I'm very glad to um, hear you and talk to you. Oh, thank you. Likewise, nice to talk to you, too. Uh, happy Noruz. Happy Noruz to you also. Thank you. Thank you. Just I have a question. I have a son. He's 12 years old, mm -hmm. and he's scared from the heart. Not high. I can say just uh, scared from the airplane. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, do you have any suggestion that can help him? Well, sure. The, the good news about phobias is that treatment can work and can work fairly quickly, relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. um, now, to begin with a phobia, we want to first usually... Not, not that there always is like some kind of traumatic event or some event that makes them come about, but we want to look at if there's something did happen. Was he ever on a flight that he you saw him get very scared or something happened? No, no. Okay. And maybe you don't even realize it, but there was a flight that he felt uncomfortable on or um, he was a little bit scared when you were on the flight. But nonetheless, uh, fear of flying is, I don't want to say it's common as in lots of people have it, but it's one of the more common ones. Uh, and a phobia, one thing I was just talking about in the previous segment about 
emotional or psychological issues and how we want to make sure we give them enough significance. When it comes to something like a phobia, what sometimes people think they can do is if I try to convince him that it's not scary, it's going to work. So I have to just tell him, oh, show him statistics. Look, planes, they don't crash. You're more likely to get hurt on the way to the airport than on your flight, all of which might be true. But a phobia is not based on the facts in the sense that we're looking at data. It's something emotional. So you're not going to convince him yourself because a lot of people try to do that. Oh, don't be afraid of the dark. There's nothing to be afraid of. Don't be scared of needles. Nothing can happen to you. A phobia doesn't work in that way. So I want you to know not to think you have to try to convince him or if you don't convince him, you're doing something wrong or bad. Your job isn't to convince him. But if he feels that he would like to see a therapist, then you can take him to see a therapist. Now, a fear of flight, does he have any other fears? No, just just no. He's okay. very happy. Just the only thing uh, when we want to travel, especially when we want to go to Iran, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, as soon as he found out we are going to take a ticket, mm-hmm. he started to say, "Oh, uh, the airplane is gonna be crash." And I said, "Oh, that that's okay. We are together. Uh, don't worry." Wait, <laughs> wait hold on, hold on, hold on. You tell you tell him it's gonna when he says it's gonna crash. You tell him, "Don't worry, we're gonna all crash together." Yes. Okay. I, was, I, uh, you know, I tried to. I don't know. You know. I okay. Now I know I said. Yeah. Well, I know I said don't try to convince him because that's not going to work. But I don't want you to convince him the other way to think that yes, the crash is going to happen. Because see, oh, the way, okay. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, maybe you're saying it in a way to joke with him, but it it, it might scare him some more because a phobia also <laughs> they it feels like there's a danger. So someone has a fear of spiders, even when you tell them the spider is not poisonous. They still feel like the way their body responds is as if they're going to die or as if something bad is going to happen. And that makes us want to avoid the situation. So phobias work by whatever creates the phobia or whatever we have the phobia towards. When we hear about it, see it, we, we move away from it. And that makes us feel safe. Um, and so if he brings that up, I would say, you know, no, you know, the flight, we're going to be okay, but I know you don't like them very much, but I wouldn't want to reemphasize his fear and make it seem like, yes, you're right. The plane is probably going to crash, but as it's crashing, we're all going to sing and dance together on the way down. You don't need to, to make him, you know, feel in that, in that way about that. Plus, you know, flight to Iran is very long. I mean, that's, uh, but you know, uh, this is how we, he thinks, you know, for whatever we want to go. And he always say, okay, we, we want to go and uh, if we want to go everywhere, the airplane is going to crash. Uh, and uh, this uh, last time we went to San Francisco and he checked the airplane, the, um, I mean the airways, to see uh, what happened. Does, does, did they have any crash before or no? Mm. And, you know, he, he's not comfortable yeah. uh, when we are in the airplane. So uh, I was thinking to see if you have. Is that yeah, it's yeah. Like I said, you know, for you to try to solve it yourself, the mm-hmm. fact that he's going on the flights, and maybe I'll ask you how he does. That's a good sign because sometimes when people when they avoid their phobia, it actually mm-hmm. can grow because you feel like you know it becomes a scarier thing. The fact that he flies is good, but you know, again, like when he hears he's going on a flight, it brings this fear feeling to him response. And this thought that I'm going to die, something bad is going to happen, um, the flight is going to crash. And even if you ask someone, 
maybe and even his age, but if you ask an adult who has a phobia to flying, what are the chances that a plane crashes? They can tell you it's very, very low. They get it. But when they're on the plane and when they're in the situation, all of a sudden it doesn't feel that way anymore. So phobias by definition are not rational because like I said before, you can tell someone a spider is not poisonous, they still will be afraid. It's not about they know they think the spider really can kill them. It's just an automatic reaction so um i definitely wouldn't make sure you don't judge him in any way about it make sure he doesn't feel bad about it because it's not like he's trying to be afraid of planes or that he can just switch it off um but you can talk to him and make sure he doesn't feel like you're saying he has a big problem or something is wrong with him but that if he wants to work on this issue for himself so he can become more comfortable on planes that he can talk to a therapist and you want to make sure one it's a child psychologist or therapist but then also Uh someone who has experience with phobias Um, because usually with phobias you use some type of cognitive behavioral therapy if you just want to deal with the phobia and as I said before it doesn't necessarily take so many sessions Um, it can be pretty quick now how when you guys go on the plane what does he do how do you guys deal with it you know, he said he said don't talk to me sometime. Just one time happened. You know, he said I feel nausea, but uh, you know he's not comfortable. Right. He's not comfortable, and always he tell me, Mom, I'm not comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, can can we you cancel the um, uh, trip? And said no, we we have to go. And uh, uh, anyway, as I said, he's not comfortable with the travel. He loves. Yeah. go everywhere but because of the uh, you know airplane he has uh, so just uh, one question mm-hmm. can I can can he hear uh, can he listen uh, our conversation is it okay well I mean if you feel like he'll be okay with it absolutely he can and even mm-hmm. if you ever wants to talk to me he can he can call okay. in because you know like I said you want to make sure he doesn't feel bad about this thing and a lot of times parents mm-hmm. Even un- unaware of what they're doing can make the child feel that it's bad. And even when he says, I don't want to go cancel the trip, before I would say we have to go, I would want you to empathize with how he feels. Like, I know you get very scared on planes. I know you don't you don't like it, you know, but we're planning to go. And you can even remind him of past times that he didn't go want to go on the plane, but it seems like you're saying he enjoys traveling, but then you're happy mm-hmm. for us to be there. And so make him feel like he's part of that um process so it's not just you have to go and have to sit through it but that he he has some kind of say in what is is going on and you know usually someone who has a phobia might have some anxiety in general so it's something you also want to keep an eye on with him is he an anxious child and actually maybe i can ask you that in general is he anxious about other things at all not just phobias but does he have an anxiety no no not really. I can't say something, you know. No, no, he doesn't have. Okay. Like I said, generally, the, someone with a phobia has some anxiety in general. It's possible um, no. that, that he does does not. But, you know, the, you know, and also another thing for you to keep in mind is although he's, you know, uncomfortable, although um, he doesn't like it, like you said, and he says it himself, I know lots of people that live their life with, a phobia of fear of flying and they still go sometimes places so i don't want you to think of it as an emergency like it has to be solved mm-hmm. he might have this fear for a while it's going to be up to him if he wants to face it because the thing with a phobia is also of course as we could imagine it's scary for someone to face it they don't want to 
to work on it because of that issue. So you just be ready that if you bring up to him this idea of maybe seeing a psychologist or someone to help him to, to because he doesn't want to, he doesn't have to be afraid. You know, he might be resistant at first. He might say, no, I don't want to. It's, you know, and, and whatever else he might say. And you want to give him that space. As always, I tell parents, um, don't force your child to see a psychologist. They have to want to see the psychologist themselves. Okay. Thank you so much. I try to call you one more time when he's home. He's not home right now. Sure, I hope. And, yeah, he's probably uh, at school, yeah. which is good. But yes. yeah, well, <laughs> if he's ever <laughs> home and he wants to talk, you know, again, only if he wants to, because I don't want him to feel pressure or feel like something is wrong with mm-hmm. him. Um, but, you know, it's just going to be, be up to him. Okay. Uh, what, when, uh, how can I uh, listen, how we can listen one more time? Sure. So by the end of the week, I'll have the show on my SoundCloud page. Um, uh-huh. okay. So soundcloud.com. And then if you search uh, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi or in session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, it'll come mm-hmm. up or also uh, on my podcast, which is on iTunes, which is okay. a free podcast. So either way, he can, can listen to that. Okay. Thank you so sure, much. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for Thank your you. call. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. Thank you. Now, to just kind of follow up on some of those things, as I was mentioning, phobias um, are one of those psychological disorders that fortunately treatment can, uh, I don't want to say cure, because I usually don't like that term, but you can say cure um, the the phobia and take that away. So the way a phobia works, usually we call them specific phobias. So it's to a specific thing. It can be to spiders, it can be to heights, it can be to flying. There's blood injection phobia. And even I would have to say myself, I don't know if I have a full-blown phobia when it comes to that, but when it comes to drawing blood, um, I do get a little bit lightheaded, maybe not a little bit, a lot of bit lightheaded when it comes to that and don't look forward to it. And so what we always look at for any psychological disorder one of the ways you can diagnose it or one of the prerequisites to diagnose it is that it has to interfere with your life in some way, in some significant way. Your personal life, your professional academic life, your overall well-being, how you feel, some way it has to interfere. So um, some people have a phobia and be- a flying, for example, and because of that, even though they need to travel for business, they go everywhere with bus and trains Uh, to avoid that, and sometimes it takes too long or can interfere with their life. But someone else might have a fear of flying, and really they don't ever need to fly, so it doesn't interfere with their life. So the diagnosis, and again with all psychological disorders, one of the um, bases to make that diagnosis is based on if there is a significant distress or somehow interfering with a person's well-being or overall life. Now, with a phobia, you're always going to have the person be resistant initially to face the fear because of course they're deathly afraid of what we're talking about and if you take them to treatment the only way you get over a phobia is you have to face it and it's really true of almost anything we talk about um, that scares us that what actually happens is when we're afraid of something and the reaction is to avoid which is how a phobia works it only reinforces the fear the thing that i'm afraid of is very scary and that's why i have to keep avoiding it so what happens is again the fear of spiders let's use that example you see a spider all of a sudden the person has this response of fear of panic and when they then avoid it they go away or they you know someone kills a spider something happens they have a strong sense of relief Ah, okay, now I'm safe again. 
Unfortunately, what that does is actually reinforces the phobia because that avoidance felt so good. When I saw it, I got so scared, but when I avoided it, it felt like a relief and that felt nice. And that makes it stronger and stronger and stronger. But actually what you do in treating a phobia in, in various different ways you can do this, you have the person face the phobia and see that they're actually okay. So maybe first you'll show them a picture of a spider and have them stay calm. And then eventually people actually get to the point where they'll hold the spider in their hands and not, I don't want to scare anyone. Don't think your psychologist is going to show up the first session with a spider for you to hold, but you get to that point eventually and see that actually there's nothing to fear. So as we often see, the only way out is through. The only way to get through something that's distressing us is to face it head on, whether it's grieving something, whether it's sadness, or whether it's something that we fear. We, we see that actually there was nothing to fear all along. We thought it was very scary, but it wasn't scary. So be ready that if you go into treatment for a phobia, you're going to have to face it. Um, and, and that's one of the only ways you can actually get over it. All right, let's go to our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. Let's go to our next caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi. Hi, and thank you, Doctor, for taking my call. Sure I really thing. appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for calling. Um, uh, I really, um, I'm kind of frustrated uh, with someone I'm getting to know, and I wanted to get your advice on it. Okay. Um, I'm 49 years old, and mm -hmm. I've been divorced for over 10 years now uh, from my second divorce. And I have two uh, young adult kids who are off to college. Okay. And I recently um, uh, met somebody online. We haven't seen each other in person, but that was over like three months ago. Okay, um, I'm already, already so that's a red flag for me. Okay, where does this person live? Like as, uh, in in relative, is, how far from you? I mean, not the, you don't give me the location, but how far from you? Uh, probably he's in the uh, Midwest, and I'm in East Coast. Okay. How old and, is he? Uh, sorry? How old is he? 56. 56, okay. So, uh, actually, after we can't, you know, talk to each other on the phone, we realized that we, I mean, I'm living close to his uh, sister and all, uh, and I know the family pretty well, but that's no indication, but still, you know. So anyways, um, we started talking on the phone, but I, I noticed that he only um, wanted to talk um, like once a week. And um, so he would say, oh, this weekend I'm going to be busy. But uh, And by the way, his wife passed away five years ago, and okay. he also has two adult kids. 
And um, so he would set up time to talk, and we would be talking for, we would have a really good conversation for over two hours. Um, but after three or four times, I still really didn't see, I would tell him about my, like, my business, but he wouldn't, I would say I have a side business, but he was not really showing any kind of curiosity to ask me, so what it is, you know, we would be more, mainly talking about religious stuff and not really anything about, he wouldn't be asking me about my life, my personal life. Mm-hmm. And because he wasn't asking, I was feeling kind of weird to ask him, you know. So this continued, I mean, once a week we would be talking, but um, still there was no indication that he was going to come and visit. And then all of a sudden, right before no rules, um, I didn't see for two weeks, I decided, you know what, I'm not going to initiate, I'm not going to text him anything, I'm going to just see what he does. So then around New Year, I still didn't see any text or anything from him. So I texted him just happy no rules, just out of being respectful. Okay, well, you were just being respectful. I think you wanted to get a reaction out of him or a response. Probably, Probably. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and uh, he, he said a very nice one, and he, you know, wishing me a happy new year, and that was it. And I was going to hear back for like three weeks, and then on the 13th day of new year, then he sends me a text out of blue, oh, you know, I hope that your exhibitor was nice, you know, my I stayed home, it was raining, and so forth. I said, oh, well, mine was really nice. And these are all just texting. Um, I told him, oh, it was nice for me. I went out, and it was really nice. And so oh, I'm glad you had a good time. And I just kind of paused to see if he's going to in- initiate anything. Then he tells me, well, you know, this week is going to be kind of busy, uh, for me, but uh, which days would work for you so we could talk on the phone? So I give him two days, and then he was going to call on Wednesday. And then he texts me yesterday saying that, you know, there's something very important that I have to attend. Is it okay? For me? Because I had given him Wednesday or Friday, so is it okay we talk on Friday? So yeah. we're going to talk on Friday, but I'm just confused. But if he's not interested, then why... Does he continue? Why did he come back again and is restarting this? Well, and if he is, why is he acting this way? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things that are concerning. The fact that you guys have been talking for three months without seeing each other, it's a very bad thing and also a bad sign. But also the way you guys are communicating and getting to know each other, you know, it's interesting you're saying, why does he keep doing this? But I can ask you the same question and you're the one I'm talking to and you can only ask yourself really why are you still interested in this because it seems like there's not much there you said the conversations mm-hmm. are about religion which i'm not even sure right. what exactly you guys are talking about but it doesn't you know seem like it's uh that interesting in the sense that it's not about the two of you getting to know each other it sounds like just exactly. two people who are wasting a little bit of time with each other every yeah. so often um, you know, you said his wife died. And I don't want to analyze him or what's going on. I don't know if he has a fear of getting close to someone again, if he doesn't want to risk that. And so he found someone who's far away and also who he's not going to get close to in any type of a way. And that might be safe for him. But I want to ask you, like, what are what are you even looking for? I guess because... Uh, <laughs> I, I do want to get into a serious relationship 
And it seems to me that the only ones that I usually end up with are long distance or people who are emotionally unavailable. Okay. So that tells us you probably have a fear of getting very close to someone yourself. But what if the opportunity never comes up? I don't see well, But I mean, you know, when people say, like, I end up being with these types of people, yes, one time maybe we can say. But if you're saying I keep ending up with these types of people, then it means to me you're seeking it out in some way. When you are mm -hmm. online dating and you look and you say, oh, they're eight states away from me, they seem more likely like someone you want to talk to, even if you don't realize it. Because, I mean, the way you're describing this, like, I don't even, you know, know... It's almost like an automated uh, recording. You basically would get as much as you're getting from this person. But you're saying when you started, it's almost like we're getting, I'm getting to know someone for three months. But I feel like you, you don't know each other at all. So I'm getting yeah. the sense from you that you're, you're afraid to get close to someone. And he kind of keeps you occupied to some degree. Or also the fact that you find people that are unavailable. I mean, we'd want to look at your, your childhood too. Uh, you know. mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Was your father emotionally unavailable? Well, um, he was actually addicted okay. um, most of my childhood and like adolescent life. Yeah. Uh, he was also an alcoholic, and uh, my mother was uh, very deeply depressed. Mm. And um, I was the youngest child among five, and big age difference. So I grew up like the only child. Yeah. So you grew up very alone and. The way you're describing it, two emotionally distant and unavailable parents, one severely depressed, one yeah. addicted. So um, it's not so surprising that there's something comfortable about finding someone who's unavailable and just keeping that there. I mean, the way, way mm -hmm. he's describing him, I think you would, you know, you're talking to him once a week, if that, mm -hmm. not for very long, maybe you read about other things. It's just, it doesn't seem like you're ready to get close. Yeah, from his side, I'm sure if I was talking to him, I'd have a lot to say too. But when you're telling me what you're creating for yourself, it seems like I don't want you to think it's an accident that all these people you date are long distance. It's something you're choosing because that's safe for you. That feels nice to have that distance. Because first of all, you think that's what relationships are like because I think the childhood you're describing was a very lonely one. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, this is just very comfortable for you. And was your father, with his um, addiction, was there any abuse in the home, physically towards your mom or the kids? Well, there was a lot of yelling and throwing stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I do remember the yelling and the, um, the fighting and... Um, and I also slept in the same room with my parents um, for a period of time. And I remember their arguments over sex and things like that. Wow. So, okay. Yeah, that's, I mean, they would argue about sex with you in the room? Yes. When you were how old? Uh, gosh, I would say maybe before I was 10 or 11. Because when my sister left the house, then I got her room, so I was not sleeping in the same room as my parents anymore. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's such an interesting dynamic of so much distance emotionally, but then in some ways too close about in the wrong types of ways. So, I mean, your, uh, your radar with, I think, relationships, love, and probably even sex are going to be very off. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, you mentioned being divorced twice. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what those relationships were like, but I can imagine, you know, 
were those men unavailable men emotionally? Well, the second one was. The first one, um, we really didn't get to know much of each other. It was mostly families pushing us to get married. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not really like I, you know, I dated him and I got to know him and got interested. That was not the case at all. Uh-huh. Um, the second one was actually I dated for a year, and uh, he ended up being a porn addict and uh, very abusive mentally towards my kids. Yeah. And towards me. And, he was the uh, one you had the children up. with? No, the children that I had from my first marriage. They were from the first marriage. Okay. Yeah. You know, and even when you say ended up, and I get that you didn't know um, he had, at least consciously, but right. I'm, unconsciously I'm sure you were drawn to a man who was very unavailable. And it, it's uh, not such a surprise. It's, it's uh, painful, so I don't want to minimize that part of it. But I want you to recognize your role in it, not to blame you, but to make you realize you're creating what you're experiencing, which also means you can create something different. If you tell me I'm just unlucky and I just keep meeting unavailable men that live far away from me, well, then you're just waiting on luck to make your life better. But if you recognize I'm somehow creating this life and my relationship pattern, that also means you have the power to change it. Um, Now, that's much easier said than done. And the next question I'm going to ask you, I'm, I'm, you know, is going to be part of your process in getting to that place. But have you been into your own therapy before? I have. I okay, have. Good. And uh, that's where I was um, told that I could be suffering from codependency. Yeah, and it that, sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, and um, I started going to the support group. Good. And uh, it, it was, I have actually, because of my busy schedule, I stopped going. Okay, um, but that also sounds like an excuse. Could be because you know part of it was maybe because one of the people who were in that group, he was saying like, um, "Oh, I've been coming to this for nine years and I'm still having issues and I'm still like this and that." And I thought to myself, "Wow, you know, he's been coming for nine years and he's still suffering. You know, so maybe this is not very helpful." Well, you know, thing one thing about human beings is like whatever our issues are, they usually are our issues for life. Now, that doesn't mean they don't get better, but for example, if someone comes in to see me for therapy and they're incredibly anxious all the time, I'm never going to tell them you're going to become this incredibly calm person who has zero anxiety. But can we manage it and make it better? Absolutely. And that's what it's about. Um, And relationship types, patterns like being codependent and having parents who were one being very depressed and one having addiction, that's a very common pattern to create codependency, especially just the addiction part. Um, mm-hmm. It makes sense that that's the pattern you have and to think it's going to just change and, well, I went to some meetings and then it didn't make a difference, that's that's not the right attitude. You have to approach it as this is going to be a lifelong challenge. I might always be dealing with these issues, but can I make progress? Yes. And what I have to do is do everything I can to make it better. Not just say, well, it seems like it's too much work or it seems like it might not help, so let's just give up and, you know, give in. No, I'm going to keep going. And don't make the excuses for yourself. I don't have the time. This is a waste of time or whatever else it might be. Look how much time you're wasting in these three months trying to create a relationship with someone who's so unavailable and distant, right? So the wasting time is, uh, we all do that. We all give ourselves that excuse like, oh, it's not worth the time or it's not worth the money to go to therapy. But I can assure you both of those things can be very helpful for you. Uh, now, when you went to therapy, how long did you go to therapy? I went for a few months, 
Okay, um, that's not going to be enough. Oh, sorry, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, she, she actually, I was going every week, once a week, and uh-huh. then she turned around and she told me that, oh, maybe this is, it would help it be more beneficial if you, if you do it as as needed basis and not every single week. Okay. I mean, I don't want to talk about someone else's work because I'm not, you know, I don't know what your relationship like was with her and what was going on there. But I would recommend therapy on an as-needed basis usually doesn't work unless it's for some type of, you know, minor consultations on some issues. But if you want to work on something that we're talking about relation relationally, you've had for maybe 40 plus years, that's going to take time. And also, it's the relationship you create with a therapist that's going to help heal that. And that can only happen with regular visits, at least once a week, and for a long period of time. So I would recommend going back to the groups, the, uh, was it Codependence Anonymous? Coda? Okay, yes. Good. I would recommend going back to that and, and getting back into regular therapy regularly be ready to invest some time into it and what you're describing with this man is really a, a non-relationship um yes, and i would exactly. recommend and i always tell people i three months without ever seeing each other is a huge mistake in my eyes because you guys aren't talking so much so it's a little bit different but still i think it's a problem but especially people that start talking every day they start to create this pseudo relationship with someone who actually doesn't exist because they don't really know each other and right. then they actually see each other someday and see they really don't know who's on the other side. So it leaves a lot of room for idealization and living in a fantasy world, which can be very, very dangerous. So in your situation, you guys aren't going so much in that direction because the communication is so infrequent, but still that yeah. risk is there. And it seems like you're both just keeping each other a little bit busy here and there, but not really desiring or seeking any type of closeness. So you don't think that I I have, like, if we talk on Friday, um, do I need to voice out what my concerns are? I, and, absolutely, I think you should. And say, what, like, you know, what's going on here? But also, I mean, you'd have to talk to yourself because it's not fair for us just to blame him and say, hey, what are you doing here? Like I said, you have to ask yourself, what am I doing here? Why am I still talking yeah. to this guy that is giving me virtually nothing, is not showing any desire to know about me, to get close in any mm-hmm. way? And like I said, maybe in some way you want that type of relationship, but that's why it's worth you working on yourself to recognize, okay, why am I seeking this this out? What kind of relationship do I want? And then creating that and finding that for yourself. It's actually pretty torturing for me. And I'm that's sure. why I, I, I was like, that's why I would text him once in a while to see, you know, if he's still around. And, um, and that's, but so, again, and that's, you know, when you're even saying that it just sounds so much to me like a little girl wanting her parents attention you know i'm just here hoping i'm still like you know there are they still around do they still care about me do i still exist for them Mm -hmm. and so you've projected a lot of that onto this man um you know who's several hundred or however many miles away and doesn't really give you much and again so some part of this feels like part of your history you're used to it but it's not healthy Mm -hmm. or good for you at all Um, so your tendency to stay in it we can understand but your awareness and ability to stop it and then create something different is what I hope you can focus on. So you think that I should completely cut off or I should just tell him that, you know, I'm just confused because then you go, you don't, you, I don't hear from you for three weeks and then you come back and you want to talk. I'm, I'm not really sure what's your intention. Well, I mean, is it's, always, right? it's always going to be your choice. I, I'm all about talking about things. So you can do almost in a way both. Like you can say, this is why I want to cut things off. But even when you say cut off, I, you know, think about it. What are you cutting off? What's there? 
It doesn't seem like there's almost anything, right? I hope you don't try to yeah. have a, a, you know, a big breakup talk with him. You, it's almost going to sound confusing. And even you're laughing yourself because you realize there's nothing really here. But you're still Correct. trying to create something where it's not. But I also think you're trying to create something where you know it's not going to get anywhere because that's safer for you and it's familiar for you. So the fact that you're in this predicament is something I want you to really look at. Why have I created this? Why have I accepted this? Someone doesn't talk to me for three weeks. And the way you started it is almost like I'm trying to get, I've been getting to know this guy for three months, but really you haven't. I mean, you've just been, yeah. uh, you know, at best, like instead of pen pals, like phone pals, like two people who don't even know exactly. each other. So, and I see him on the site, you know, I see him on that dating site. Yeah. All the time. Like I and said, I'm my like, guess is he doesn't want to get that close to anyone. It could be because yeah. he had a death of a wife at a fairly young age uh, or younger yeah. age and would be expected. And maybe he never wants to get close to anyone else. That's that's for him, though. You know, we let him figure that out for himself. You have to figure out for yourself, why am I keeping myself in this situation? And hopefully, um, you know, like I said, I would get into therapy immediately, go to the CODA meetings and just work on yourself and recognize your radar and your judgment in relationships is going to be off because of what you experienced in childhood. So, Dr. Fahid, again, going back to the conversation that I will have with him on Friday. <laughs> yes, you're very focused on that. Let's go to the commercial break. I do want to give you a chance to talk about that and see what else we could do, okay? Okay, hang on okay, the line. thank you. All right. Thanks. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to our caller. Caller, are you still there? Yeah. Thank okay. You so, much for so you're really concerned about this this phone call on Friday, <laughs> and, <laughs> which we don't even know if it's going to happen. You know, almost to me, it sounds like you're, um, you know, like you you want to start going to a different Starbucks, and you're like, how do I tell the previous barista that I won't be coming in anymore? <laughs> And getting coffee because you, you you don't even barely you don't really know this guy although i'm imagining yeah. in your head you've thought about him a lot and what's happening and maybe created a that kind of a pseudo relationship i talked about in the last segment but to me it's, right. it's interesting and maybe it could be go back to your codependency you're so concerned about his emotions and if you're going to hurt him Probably, or yeah. if i'm going to lose this thing that somehow in your mind is something um significant or i'm supposed to somehow make this man like me and love me and I don't want to give up because for someone who's codependent, it can feel like a failure to not get that from him. True. So maybe you true. feel like it's a failure to, to stop and move on. So, I mean, Very I gave true. a lot of different ideas about that, but tell me what your thoughts are about this big talk no, on Friday. I, I mean, you're right. I feel like this. I like when there are challenges in a relationship and I feel like I have to win this one. Or, yeah, that's the thing. See, know, yeah, relationships are challenging themselves. We don't have to yeah, create, you know, obstacle courses. Okay, like I'm going to, you know, um, wear earplugs so I can't hear anything. So we have to try to communicate without me being able to hear you. Relationships right, themselves yeah. are challenging. We don't need to create challenge. But the fact, the way you're even saying it is, it's not that you like challenges. It's actually you want there to be some space and distance. Or you have to, you want to start with someone who's unavailable. And you think mm -hmm. your challenge is to get them to love you or to be good enough that they want to be with you. Yeah, and, and the part that not knowing drives me absolutely crazy yeah. and not knowing, like, what is it about what I said that he didn't like? What He hasn't even seen me. It couldn't be something physical right. know, that he didn't like about what I look like. Yeah, but you're taking it, and, you know, this is one of our 
yeah, I think it's one of the five agreements or something about not taking things personally. But right. that's the thing, and you're taking it so personally that it's something about you. When the way you're describing him to me, he doesn't seem like he wants to get close to anyone. So when he's mm-hmm. being distant with you, when he's not approaching you, I, I don't hear it at all having anything to do with you. It seems like that's on him. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, most people, what they're doing towards us or talking towards us or whatever it might be, is about them and not about us. But unfortunately, right. we tend to take it personally. And if you're diagnosing yourself with uh, someone with codependency, those you're going to have it really strong. So what did mm-hmm. I do wrong? I'm guilty. Yeah. I did something bad. I was bad in some way. And that's why he's not responding. Whereas it seems like he's mm-hmm. someone who's very, very distant and not emotionally probably connected to himself or anyone. Yeah, yeah. Even the way that he was communicating or he was texting, it was so like miss such and such. Not really. Uh, he would call you miss such and friendly. such? Sorry? He would call you miss such and such? Like Honoms or whatever uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. my name is. Okay, you right. Know? Yeah. Not not saying you know the, the endearment, not using any any kind of endearment. Right, so very formal. After, sorry. Yeah, very formal. Yeah, very formal. Right, which yeah, again, exactly. I mean, isn't it probably an indication again that he's not someone who wants to get close to anyone? You know, he's yeah. It's just that that space. He's creating that, making sure that space is still there. That barrier is still there but that's why you have to keep asking yourself why do i want this and i think it's it's mm-hmm. becoming more clear and i hope it becomes more clear to you but i think what you're scared of and why you keep holding on to okay what's gonna happen friday do i just cut it now or do i try to work on things is that yes to you it does seem like a failure if you aren't able to get yeah. this man to love you because it's because going back I'm, to your childhood I'm, going back yeah, to your childhood and, saying your father you, you weren't able to get your father to love you the way you wanted to because of because of his addiction and again as a child we can understand unfortunately kids always take it personally they think if my mom if my dad doesn't love me if my mom or dad abuses me they're perfect and they're omnipotent and all-powerful there must be something wrong with me it's even the safer conclusion maybe for a child unfortunately as they say it's better to think you live in a uh, that you're a bad person living in a safe world and to think that you're living, you know, you're a, a good person but living in a very dangerous, scary world. So mm-hmm. um, that's probably the conclusion you made. True. That's very true. And I, I remembered when I was young, you know, I, I kept hearing my dad telling my mom, you know, you're making me upset so I have to drink more. Yeah. So I kept hearing wow. that and I felt it was kind of my fault if he was drinking, not mm. quitting to drink or... Because he once told me, you know, if you go and become a doctor, I will stop drinking. So yeah, wow. I, I didn't. And mm. um, maybe in a, in a child's mind, I, I was blaming myself. I'm you sure know. you did. I'm sure you, and you, you did. And you, you mean, sometimes implicitly, parents don't even say it and parent, uh, children blame themselves. But your father explicitly is saying both to your mom and to you in different ways that it's because of you I drink. Which is very common. You know, addicts have a hard time owning their problem and seeing it as their problem they tend to think of it as if other people were good if other people loved me if they treated me right i wouldn't have to do this so they don't take that and unfortunately he was telling you and and you're a little child what else could you do but believe it but unfortunately that belief stays within you and you carry that with you into your relationships today and even the way you choose the people you get close to or try to get Mm -hmm. close to or even don't get close to uh, is related to the, those experiences. And your, your childhood sounds incredibly traumatic. Yes, it was. Yeah, and we don't want to minimize minimize that. So 
And I don't want you to minimize that and how you deal with it. Going to therapy just for a few months irregularly as needed. You know, right now you need it. You need it every week. And that's the only way it's, it's going to make an impact. People go to therapy for years and it, there's no there's no reason not to. And you deserve that for yourself. Yeah, I, I completely hear you. And I'm definitely going to resume that. And Good. I should choose another one because maybe that one was not the perfect one for me. Maybe and, not the right match. And yeah, and, and be ready to make, like I said, it's the relationship that really heals in therapy. And it takes time to build that. And so be ready for that process. It's going to take some time. Yeah. So again, going back... <laughs> <laughs> to Friday? <laughs> Yes, so going back to Friday, everyone, everyone's so excited to hear about this conversation, which to me, I mean, the way you're describing him, it's going to be probably so mechanical. And you see how much you're building up something that might not, first of all, might not even happen. I mean, he, you were supposed to talk to him today and he said no, but you're putting so yeah. much weight and significance on something. Again, I mean, it's it, to me, it's like you're telling the barista at Starbucks, I'm going to go to the one across the street. I'm not coming here anymore. And you, you know, or you, and you think you have to write him a card? Do I talk to him in person? Do I wait till his break? Do you know what I mean? That's how it sounds like to me right now. But, but I understand that maybe in your head you've built him up to be something much more. So I don't want to minimize that side of it. But the amount of connection you have with him seems like something you probably have more of a connection with someone you see at, at Starbucks a couple times a week than you probably. do with this person. So, you know, like I said, and take that ownership i'm creating my relationships it's not accidental it's not uh just that's all life has given me or just ends up being that way i'm choosing these people somehow i'm attracted to them and something about them feels familiar and comfortable for me and these types of relationships are familiar and comfortable and it's not up to you to try to get someone that doesn't like you to love you that's not how relationships work you should be with someone who openly expresses interest in you from the beginning, shows you affection, shows you care, and you're not supposed to win their love. You're not supposed mm -hmm. to earn it in some way. Yes, you treat them well back, but there isn't this feeling that you have to earn or convince them that you're lovable. Because yeah. even as I'm saying that, I hope you recognize that that's coming from within yourself, that you're trying to convince yourself that you're lovable, when yeah. that never should be in question to begin with. You're lovable and likable as you are. Yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like I'm not enough for myself, and I feel like I have to constantly get validation from outside. Yeah, and then interestingly enough, you choose people that don't give it to you. Yeah. That, that's, the, that's kind of the, the interesting paradox of it all. It's like you're seeking it and yearning for it so bad, but you specifically mm -hmm. pick people that won't give it to you. And that's kind of the, the complex situation that human beings are so complex. You know, we think, well, mm -hmm. if I want something, I should go get it. But we're, yeah. it, there's so much more behind it. And that's, that's why the therapy can help you really unpack and unravel all of this and heal mm -hmm. a lot of those wounds from your, your early childhood to recognize you were never wrong or bad to begin with. It was mm -hmm. a story you told yourself to make sense of your world. And you continue to take that story with you every day of your life. Yeah, and part of me is scared, you know, I'm of going course. to turn 50 soon, and I, I'm just so scared of being alone and being not without anybody, you know, it's just, yeah. I know that we should be okay with ourselves and happy with ourselves, and, you know, I have created a life that is very busy and, you know, with business, job, and this and that, but I I still feel like that that's 
the wanting of that's, having and a that's romantic fine. relationship. W- wanting and needing are different things. To want to be with someone is different than needing to be with someone. But also the way you described your life being busy. Um, busy doesn't necessarily mean we're being productive or doing good things. Busy could just mean we're occupying our time to distract ourselves from feeling even the things we don't have, but also our feelings. So even when you say I'm too busy to go to codependency anonymous or too busy to go to therapy, those sound like excuses. Like you said, it's, it's scary to face these things. And I understand that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm trying to push you and encourage you to do so. Cause I know it's not easy and the process won't be easy, but it's yeah. going through that because you deserve it to try to create something different. Yes. you you said you're close to 50. Um, and for 50 years, you've probably had to deal with all of these things. We want to make it that the rest of your life, hopefully 50, 60, 70 years is not that way or can be different. And you can do that, but it's going to take work. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Good luck. So I, I understand what you're saying. So there's no need to have a, a conversation with him. Well, no, really you can. No, I would. I would. Ha- I mean, you could still have the conversation. I just. I, I would hope you don't, you know, put so much weight and significance onto it, which it sounds like you're doing. So, I mean, you could talk to him Friday and maybe even you can get some closure and just say, you know, this, it seems like you're not really looking for a relationship or you're not really looking to get close. And I can understand that and definitely make, remember that it's not about you. I'm sure even as I'm saying that, you'll still take it personally. But nonetheless, I want you to keep that in mind and, and just you can move on. So I'm not saying you don't have to talk to him, but this, um, you know, anxiety and you know you're having about this conversation it doesn't seem like there's much there but i think there's much there because of your history that you're projecting onto him and this conversation and so you know we'll see how it goes everyone's going to be rooting for you every on this conversation <laughs> Friday to see how it goes. But don't worry. Oh, thank you. Yeah, good luck with it. But that conversation is very minor compared to the work you have to do on yourself, which is going to involve true. a lot of conversations and a lot of meetings and a lot of therapy. And you deserve all of that. And, you know, give that thank to yourself, you. okay? Thank you so much. You've been so helpful. Oh, I it's really been very nice to I talk to you. I always enjoy your show. I appreciate that. It was very nice to talk to you. And maybe call thank us in a bit you. with an update, okay? I will. Thank you so much, sure. Doctor. Take good Have care. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Session with Doctor Fader Lockwe. Uh, let's go to a caller, Radio Hamra. Uh, yes, hi. Hello. Hello. Uh, actually, do you remember my question about my son? He's almost uh, 12 years old, and mm-hmm. he, uh, he's scared from airplanes. Yes. And here he wants to talk to you. Okay, sure. That's sure. Yes, let's have him come on the air. Hello. <laughs> Hello, sir. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. It's so nice to talk to you. Now... Um, I'm not sure if your mom told me, but she told you, but she called me uh, earlier on the show and was talking about um, you and saying that you have a, a fear of flying. Yes, that's true. That's true. Okay. So I want to hear about it from you because she told me from her her perspective. But tell me yourself, like when it comes to flying, what do you feel and how long have you felt this way? Um, well, when I'm on the, when I'm about to get on the plane... I get very nervous, yeah. very, very nervous. Mm-hmm. And then when I get in my seat, I just hold on tight. I, I've, and then, like, when we're going up, I, I feel like the plane's, like, about to, like, 
like the engines when it's like kind of turning, mm -hmm. I feel like it's gonna like flip over and crash. Yeah, so you're just really must be very scary for you. Yes, very I can scary. understand that. Yeah, and I'm sure because of that, you're like paying attention to any sounds and you hear things and yes. you're noticing. Yes. So we call that being vigilant, like you're ready to hear something that means something bad's about to happen. So that does sound really, really tough. How long? How long do you feel like it's been this way? Like how many years? Well, um, it started, I believe, in first grade. First grade. And right grade. now I'm in fifth grade. Yeah, so maybe like four or five years or so. Yes. Okay. So you remember that when you were like, do you ever remember being on a plane and it was really scary for you when you were around that age? Yes. Okay. Yes. Tell me about that. When, well, it was like a, it was like turbulence. The turbulence yeah. was really bad. And then I, I started getting scared mm -hmm. being on a plane. Oh, so you were, because you know, and I asked your mom, and that's why I'm glad I get to talk to you. She didn't know if there was any experience you had that was very scary for you. Because a lot of times with phobias, there's like one incident. Oh, it isn't always one. Sometimes it's even more. But there's one that was really scary that makes the phobia kind of stick. So maybe it was that time when you were like five or six and you were on a plane and there was a lot of turbulence. And sometimes that can feel really scary, even though the plane is probably okay. But then that, from then on, you had a fear of being on the plane. Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Okay. I see. Now, what can your, what do your parents do and what could they do when you're on the plane to make it easier for you? Um, well, maybe the thing that makes me comfortable mm -hmm. on the planes is like, when they have like entertainment, yeah. But on those, because that distracts me right. from the thought. Mm -hmm. Um, but some planes when they don't like have any entertainment, it kind of gets me scared. So maybe they could like bring some type of entertainment on the plane. Great idea. Yeah, you're right. It seems like so if you can distract yourself, that helps a bit to make you not think about the the scary stuff or try to pay attention to the plane. You kind of forget about it a little bit. Yes. Okay, good. That's good that you, you seem like you really know yourself well and what works. So that's a good idea that if you guys can look into it, that if the plane doesn't have like the onboard entertainment, that you guys bring on an iPad or something that you can use to help you kind of keep distracted and, and keep you occupied during the flight. Okay. That sounds like a good idea. So now if there's also another option, you know, I talked to your mom about this. Sometimes people can go talk to, so I'm a psychologist, so there are people like me and I'm sure someone close to where you live that might be able to help you in dealing with this situation, to help you with your phobia. Okay. Would you be open yeah. to seeing someone? Uh, repeat, please. Sure. So sometimes people can see psychologists that help them with these situations that help them oh, with phobias okay. would you be open like because i talked to your mom about that too is that something you'd be open to um well I've, yeah yeah maybe okay, okay. so think okay. about it well you know you could think about that with your mom and that's an option but i think for now it looks like you you thought about one way to help you in those situations is to have some kind of entertainment to distract you and mm -hmm. also you know i told you i would tell your mom again but to really see what would help you make you feel more comfortable and to keep doing that. And also, I think it's very brave that you're still able to go on the flights even though you're scared. Yeah. Yeah, because it seems like even though you're scared, you've been on some long flights and 
I think recently she said you guys went to San Francisco and you get scared, but you're still brave enough to go, which shows us that although you're scared, you're able to face it, which I think is very uh, admirable. I think that's really, really cool that you can do that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So nice to talk to you. Um, I don't know if your mom wants to talk to me. You can ask her. But anyway, I'm very happy I got to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank sure. you for our Sure. Thank you. He sounds thank like a great, great boy. Um, and, you know, I hope you heard what he was saying. Make sure you take care of him. And, and, and he's the boss when it comes to how he feels about this stuff. So make sure you listen to him. Okay, sir. Uh, thank right. you. Thank you for calling. Thank, thank sure. you for your time. My Bye. pleasure. Bye-bye. All right. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi. Yes, hi, Dr. Faye. Uh, I have a question in regard that we you were talking about the phobia. Yes. So I have a couple of incidents that I can give an example to, and I don't know if this would be under social phobia, and if there if there it is. So what can I do with it? And okay. then if it's not, what would it be? Okay, go so ahead. the first example is that for uh, when I go to stores, like when they're like the Christmas times and stuff like that, that there are so many people and so many uh, additional merchandise, I don't feel that I want to walk to, so I just try to move myself away from the situations mm-hmm. like that. And also, like, for example, if I'm going to the restaurant and the restaurant is really busy and so many people, sometimes I just can't stand it. And then when I, if, if uh, there was a couple of times that I really had to leave mm-hmm. and uh, just tell people, you know, all, all the people that I came in with, I just told them that I can't stand it and I got to leave. Yeah. And then I left the place and then in the middle of the road, I'm just going down, okay, what happened? What did I do? And what mm. do I do now? You know? Yeah. Now to look at what we're talking about. So um, you asked about if this is social phobia and it doesn't sound like social phobia, but I'm glad you're asking because you might be thinking, well, I'm in environments around people. So is that, make it social phobia social phobia is more about when we have this fear of being judged or um seen by other people in a negative way so uh if we're afraid that in a a party we might say something stupid or people might judge us that's social phobia that's more yeah it doesn't sound like that (laughs) what you're talking about sounds more like something like claustrophobia which is a fear of enclosed spaces or places where there's a lot of people or maybe something like agoraphobia Um, which is where people don't like to be in places where they feel like there's no way out. Let me ask you this. Are you, do you get anxious if you're on a bridge or in a tunnel? Mm, No. No. What about in elevators? No. No? Okay. Um, Yeah, it sounds like something maybe like a, a claustrophobia or like I said, agoraphobia. That's not what we would call social phobia, which again has to deal more with being evaluated by other people but it seems like for you it's more about you feel stuck or you feel like you know there's too many people around and that chaoticness makes you feel uncomfortable that's definitely something else and 
as I was talking about even with the boy or his mother before, you know, we don't want to judge ourselves for these things. So you said, when I leave the restaurant, um, all of a sudden I ask myself, what did I do or why did I put myself out here? Maybe you even feel embarrassed. But in that moment when you were there, I'm sure it felt like you were in danger or something really was wrong. And like you said, I have you have to just get yourself out of there no matter what. Like you have right. no option. So don't judge yourself for that feeling because it's not something you're trying to do or really is in your control. Um, but if it does upset you, absolutely you can go see a psychologist, again, someone who who um, specializes in anxiety and, and phobia disorders, and they can help you with that to not make you feel that way or to help you understand it better and work on it. Okay. Does the this, uh, distance that uh, comes from, you know, starting some point, like, for example, I remember the most that, you know, I try to uh, notice in myself that this thing that's happening is like when uh, there was a period of time that I was really depressed, and at that point of the time, I could not even, you know, the, uh, the parties that I went to, I mean, like after half an hour, the people around me just came like, my God, there's too many people here, so I had to pull myself out of the uh, the place and mm-hmm. go to the place that nobody's there, and then I could not stand it, then I left the place. Mm-hmm. And then um, right now it's not as bad that that day it was, but it's uh, kind of like... I remember when I was a kid, I had a, a situation that we went into the uh, like uh, indoor bazaar to mm-hmm. one of the um, um, cities in uh, like uh, uh, west of Iran. Uh, so, and that was the first indoor bazaar that I went to, and uh, it was very old one, and it was so narrow, and then I kind of like collapsed, I, I mean like I uh, passed away, and I mean like passed I out? fainted, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, you know, all of a sudden I uh, came to myself and I see that, oh, okay, people took me outside. Mm. And that was when you were a child? I I was like about, I think, eighth grade or something. Yeah, so I mean, that's telling us you had it, you know, so it's been there for a while. Now, things like depression, you know, depression and anxiety, although we look at them as so different, they're definitely correlated and can, in a way, reinforce each other. So sometimes people during a major depressive episode or just while they're having depression might be likely to develop a phobia also, it can happen. So it's possible that during that depression, it brought it back in a certain way if you're saying you haven't dealt with it for a while. Um, so it, it, it's very possible that's what happened. Is that what you were saying, that it, it came back after the depression and you hadn't dealt with it for some time? Or have you yeah, always I mean, been afraid? Like the, the first incident that I, I mean, like at that point, I would not know what it is. But I, uh, that happened, uh, that that time when I was at eighth grade, that happened. 
So it didn't happen anything like that that I could, mm-hmm. you know, obviously can remember. After that. After that. Until and recently. Also, when, but then, the, when did it start again? Uh, when it started again, it was like about uh, maybe 10 years ago when okay. I went through divorce and stuff like that. So I, I could not go to any... Uh, parties like that that I told you mm-hmm. the example of it. So I would, uh, uh, I, I never, uh, I tried not to go. And then if if I did, and it was so many people in it, that kind of thing would happen to me. And then, yeah. but still, I have like uh, at that point of the time also. I could not really tolerate, like even one time I went up the escalator on Macy's and then all of a sudden I saw so many people and so many merchandise and just I just turned mm-hmm. myself around and I find myself in a parking lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, that feeling of being... Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a panic attack related to these phobias? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I had a panic attack like about... After after those um, those incidents, I mean, like I was coming out of the you know so many painful thing that I went through. So one time I was at work, and uh, I just thought that I'm gonna if I don't leave the place right now, I'm gonna just collapse and die. Mm-hmm. So I went. I just went outside. And it just like, uh, and then one time I went to uh, uh, to the hospital, um, and uh, I thought that I have a heart attack, but it was, um, I'm sure it was kind of like anxiety, panic attack. Yeah, and that's a very common experience, people having a panic attack, sometimes they describe it saying it feels like a heart attack, something like that, and they very regularly go to emergency rooms because they think it's something mm-hmm. medical when it is a panic Panic attack. The more you talk about it, the more it sounds something like agoraphobia, but I'm not quite sure. Um, being in open places and even shopping malls sometimes is included in the list of things that can cause that feeling. And you do have a propensity to have anxiety and depression from what you've described. Now, if you haven't already, it might not be bad to go get treatment for this if it's something that really bothers you and upsets you. And definitely it can be worked on. So I would recommend that for you to go to go see a psychologist and see what you can do. Maybe even some medication can help you, uh, like an antidepressant. But there's definitely options out there for you to, to allow you. You don't have to be suffering or feeling that pain. Right. I mean, uh, right now, I mean, like, for different reason, but the doc- doctor uh, gave me um, uh, uh, antidepressant, but not for for the depression, but the uh, different reason. But it did help me a lot. I mean, like I uh, I used to have some like uh, I would get upset or angry mm-hmm. um, very fast. But uh, that I have uh, just I'm not like that anymore. Uh, citrulline they gave me. So that has helped me quite a bit, okay. but still, 
<clears throat> I have that, you know, those incidents that I really don't want to go to stores or or restaurants that is really busy. Mm-hmm. And if I if I go, for example, even when I go to the restaurant and there are so many people, even uh, the company that I know, like we are uh, a lot of people. So I just sit in a corner and I and I realize that I don't move for all that hours that we're there. Mm-hmm. And I don't listen to anyone, and I just, it's like that I want to be quiet in my mind. I hear voices, but I don't really listen to people. Well, I mean, yeah, that feeling of being overwhelmed is what you're describing. And it does sound like definitely something's going on, a phobia, that feeling of overwhelming um, in those situations. The good news is the medication, the antidepressant, although you said it was for something else, it's actually the primary medication if you're going to take medication for something like agoraphobia. So oh. it can help you there. I would recommend seeing a therapist, too, to talk more about what you're dealing with because it seems like something clearly is going on uh, if it's still happening. Uh, and when a phobia starts, it doesn't... Almost never will it go away without some kind of intervention. It's possible, but you want to do something about it. So it's it's worth thinking about going into therapy along with the medication. That's going to give you the best chance of dealing with this. And and uh, then another question: If you have still time, uh, that you sure. know, when how I about was, this? If, if for that your last question, sure. hang hang on the line because we're actually past the commercial break, and I'll bring sure. you on after the break. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right, thank you. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lokwi. We'll be right back. Back before the break, we were with the caller. Caller, you still there? Hello. Yes. Hi. Yes. Hi, doctor. So, and uh, the, the uh, another question that I had is that could it be possibly these incidents or this uh, what I have right now has any relation to my childhood when I was like three years old? I was. Uh, Playing with kids, and they we played hide and seek, and then at that time they uh, they put me in a very dark room, and they tried to scare me and stuff, mm-hmm. and then so I uh, fainted there, and then from that point I became like a stutter. And then mm-hmm. for whole my life, I've, of course, I worked on that part, and I got over the stuttering. But can this have any relationship to that? Well, absolutely. Um, to begin with, I mean, if really the stutter started right after that incident, I mean, it's heartbreaking. But yeah, I mean, it was it was like a traumatic experience, the way you're describing it. And it's interesting you're bringing that up today because in the first segment I was talking about people doing practical jokes on people and thinking it's just a joke so it doesn't have a negative effect. And of course, it seems like these were just kids, so maybe really they didn't know, so I'm not trying to blame them. But still, these things can have a big effect. So it's very possible that in that experience you were traumatized and the way you're describing it, whether it's something like an agoraphobia or claustrophobia, it's that fear of 
um, being in spaces that you don't feel comfortable in or places you can't get out of. And I'm sure if they put you there, did they kind of put you in a way where you couldn't get out? Yes, they yeah. they closed the door, yeah. and and there was, it was that place. You know the the old houses, like in Iran, we were living in a uh, uh, in a big houses that was c- kind of like old historical ones. Yeah. and then there was like um, um, uh, the big kind of kind of small room for storage sure on something like an attic or something yeah. yes and then yeah. they closed the door and they scared me with you know mm. uh sound of different animals and stuff like that and then when they saw that i don't respond so they ran away because they were kids and they didn't know what to do mm. till my parents came and found me and uh, from that point on, I, I was very, uh, I mean, like, I developed very bad stuttering mm-hmm. that I could, you know, it would take one word I wanted it to say would have taken, like, forever. And, yeah. uh, but I worked on that for my, I mean, like, whole my life, basically. I, I still do because... You know, although that many years has passed that I don't uh, feel like that I have any stuttering, but still sometimes it it's like in the corner sure. that can come out. Yeah, you know, earlier today I was talking about what usually is our issues, they don't just go away. So sometimes the rest of our life we do have to, to deal with them. I mean, the way you're speaking right now, everything is very clear and I don't hear it, but I can understand it's still something you deal with but absolutely what you experience at that age could have had a big impact on what you're experiencing now that fear of being in the dark space you know it does sound to me like claustrophobia would maybe come about from something like that being somewhere where you you um felt maybe crowded or stuck but in agoraphobia places where we can't get away from that's part of that process so i would look that up so it's agoraphobia i don't know if you've heard of it before Uh, a-g-o-r-a and then phobia Mm p-h-o-b-i-a look that up and see if you feel like it connects to other things that you experience but that seems like it might be what you're dealing with and yeah very often a traumatic event can lead to a phobia. Um, I was talking with the boy earlier on before I spoke to you, and he said there was he remembers being on the plane once where the turbulence really scared him when he was very young, and after that he thinks the phobia started. So it's very possible that that memory or that um, incident is related to what you're feeling now. And as I said before, I think it's a good idea to go talk to someone about it and work on it because there could be a lot that you gain from from going through that. And should I go to, like, a psychiatrist first? You can't. I mean, I usually think you can go to both. I would go to to a psychologist. I'm not sure who's prescribing your medication. I would always recommend that psychiatric medications be prescribed by a psychiatrist, although the majority of people get their psychiatric meds from their general practitioner. Mm -hmm. But I always think it's more appropriate and a better idea to go to your psychiatrist or go to a psychiatrist. So I would recommend seeing a psychiatrist, but also you can look at um, going into therapy to help you with this issue because what you're feeling, it's very automatic. Like you go to the mall and all of a sudden you feel overwhelmed and you ha- you, the only thought that comes to your mind is how do I get away? Because the feeling is this feeling of almost death, that I'm going to die if I don't get out of this situation. And so 
um, you know, it might not be a bad idea to talk to someone about that too. So I'd recommend seeing both a psychiatrist okay. and a psychologist. Yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you so much, Doctor. I sure. really appreciate it, and uh, thank you for all the help to right. me and the others. Well, I, I appreciate like every you day that. Listening to you guys, it's very helpful. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. I it's a pleasure it. to do it, and very nice to talk to you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, we have just a few minutes left, and it was something actually I wanted to talk about because if you noticed, um, once someone called about a phobia, we had a whole bunch of calls about phobias uh, today, and I didn't make that request, but it just ended up being that way. And a couple things come to mind about that. To begin with, it shows that once someone talks about something, we feel more comfortable to talk about it too, or it reminds us of some issue that we have. So maybe that first person calling and saying, I have a phobia made other people realize, oh yeah, you know, if I've had this issue too, maybe I can talk about it. Or also, well, if this person can talk about their phobia, then maybe it's okay for me to talk about mine. And that's one of the things I hope that gets accomplished by a show like this is that we reduce the stigma of mental illness in several ways, one by just talking about them, but also showing that it's okay to talk about them and that many people are dealing with them. They're nothing to be afraid of and nothing we need to hide. Millions of people have uh, phobias and anxiety disorders. Right now I'm looking up statistics. 15 million people roughly have social anxiety disorder. 15 million, that's a lot. Um, and millions of others have other types of um, issues, claustrophobia, 5 to 7% of the world's population, according to this statistic I'm looking at. So these things are so common, but we're very often afraid to talk about them or think we're not supposed to talk about it, or think we're supposed to, we're ashamed, we should be ashamed of them. And look at this last caller. She might have a phobia related to an experience, a trauma that she had when she was three years old, which of course we can in no way blame her for in any way, shape, or form, and maybe now it's still having this effect on her. So I would hope she feels that I'm glad she called and talked about it. And also I hope she gets help for herself, but I hope she doesn't feel any embarrassment or shame about it because it's not something she did something wrong to be experiencing. It doesn't make her weak in any way. It doesn't make her bad in any way at all. It's something that happened to her and something that, although it's not a natural reaction and that it's how we want to react, but it can be a natural response to what she might've experienced at the age of three. So by having um, this type of a dialogue, I think it's very good to allow people to talk about what they're going through. One for the callers themselves, which I always um, commend their courage to come on the air and to talk about what they are going through and what they're experiencing. But I also hope for anyone listening who can relate to that person and maybe realize, oh, there's someone else who deals with what I'm dealing with and it's okay for me to talk about it, but also that I can talk maybe myself to someone else, whether or not it's on the air, but get some help and realize there's nothing wrong with us for having, you know, these issues we have. It's human to have emotional pain, just like it's human to have physical pain. And we have to recognize that more and more. And today I thought it was, it was so interesting to see that once a call about a phobia um, came through, almost all the rest of the calls were related to phobias and anxiety disorders, showing that you know, all of us are suffering in different ways. All of us are dealing with different things. And we have to recognize that it's okay that we're doing that and to show each other it's okay. And also to show that it's okay to get help for them. We don't need to suffer in silence and just carry that pain with us 
going forward. So again, a big thank you to all the callers who call in um, and share their stories to remind each and every one of us that it's okay to talk about our pain and what we are going through. I hope to be of some kind of help in talking to them and with them, but even more, I think them sharing their stories. I've known my father's always said this himself too. It's what really makes a show like this possible and what makes it valuable is the people sharing their experience. So a big thank you to all the callers today, especially the 12-year-old I got to talk to. I really enjoyed that. All right, we're getting to the end of today's show. I do want to make another reminder for the book of the week. Again, it's Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence. Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman. I'll be talking about that on Monday's show uh, coming up this next week. All right, you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Thank you again to all the callers and all the listeners and to Rahman here in the studio. I uh, hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.